0: I have almost all of his audiobooks. He's pretty prolific and you just I just listen to him when I'm driving and cycling and working out. He distills complex information so succinctly and effectively. Uh, and he cuts right to the point. Uh, yeah, there's no sense of ideology. Sometimes he's called a black conservative. I don't know that he's a conservative. He strikes me more like a classical liberal. The fact that I don't know exactly what his politics are uh, is a good sign uh, that, you know, that is not the most important thing you need to know about Thomas Sowell. It's just the ideas. His intro to economics is just superb. So I think he called it the tragic vision because there's a sense that we'll never get to utopia. Yeah, as, as Sol famously said, there are no solutions. There's just um, uh, trade-offs. I think what he means is there's a darker side to human nature that we have to deal with. I think that's the, the kind of the tragic side. It's like we're never going to get to utopia because we have these inner inner demons.
1: Welcome to episode eight of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. Today, I sat down for a chat with Michael Shermer to discuss how Thomas Sowell's ideas have impacted his thinking and his work. We met in person at Michael's office in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Michael is the founder and publisher of Skeptic Magazine and the host of his own podcast The Michael Shermer Show. He teaches a course called Skepticism 101 at Chapman University in California. From 2001 until 2019 He wrote a monthly column for Scientific American magazine called Skeptic. He has written numerous books since the 1980s, including Why People Believe Weird Things, 1997, The Science of Good and Evil, 2004, The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom, 2015, and, most recently, Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist, in 2020. I first discovered Michael from his podcast. I continue to be amazed by the quality of the intellectuals who come on his show to discuss their books and ideas. His podcast is a who's who of the best and brightest thinkers of our age. Here are some examples since he started podcasting six years ago. Richard Dawkins... Deepak Chopra, Ben Shapiro, Gad Saad, Jonathan Haidt, Heather McDonald, Steven Pinker, Daniel Kahneman, Barry Weiss, David Buss, Neil Ferguson, Jordan Peterson, the list goes on and on, over 226 podcast episodes to date. Week after week after week, he diligently reads his guests' books, and is able to engage with the authors in a way that is both challenging and stimulating. I believe that his guests feel understood and appreciated, which is why he attracts such an A-list of intellectuals to his show. I know of few other intellectuals besides Michael Shermer who are able to command such a wide range of subjects at such a deep level. He is a polymath in the true sense of the word. Besides his intellectual accomplishments, Michael is also a professional level long distance cyclist and co-founder of the 3,000 mile non-stop transcontinental bicycle competition called Race Across America, which he completed five times. There is even a medical condition named after him, the so-called Shermer neck, which afflicts cyclists and their neck muscles. When I arrived at Michael's office for this interview, he was decked out in his cycling gear and wearing one of those thick waist belts. I'm not sure if he had just gotten back from a 50-mile ride or had just helped to unload 100 cases of Skeptic magazine from a delivery truck. Either way, Michael is not just a man of the mind, he is also a man of the body, which is further evidence of his polymath status. Michael Shermer? Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me, and welcome to the Skeptic Society offices.
1: It's a real pleasure, yeah, yeah meeting with you in person. This is a great uh, opportunity. First of all, I wanted to say that I contacted you, and I think I asked you, "Have you are you a student or a reader of Thomas Sowell? Because yeah. I just had a feeling that you yeah. might be, uh, and then you said you were. And I've noticed that you've quoted him a couple of times
0: yeah, quite a bit, uh, actually. I try not to overdo it, in fact, because he's so influential. I have several of his books, um, but I have almost all of his audio books. Audible.com makes them. Most of them are free. Uh, I don't know if people know this or not. I've tweeted it out a couple of times. But some of his older books, I think maybe the copyrights run. I don't know what, but uh, you, maybe it's just for members. But if you go to Audible.com, you type in Thomas Soul, you get a long list of his books. He's pretty prolific, and you just—I just listen to him when I'm driving, and cycling, and working out, whatever. And it's great uh, because he, he, first of all, he is very quotable <laughs> uh, because he he distills complex information so succinctly and effectively, uh, and he cuts right to the point. Yeah, uh, you know, there's no sense of ideology in him. I, I can't say I know for sure what he voted in various elections. Uh, sometimes he's called a black conservative. I don't know that he's a conservative. He strikes me more like a classical liberal, or with maybe adjacent libertarian. But I'd say that goes too far. Um, So the the fact that I don't know exactly what his politics are uh, is a good sign uh, that you know that is not the most important thing you need to know about Thomas Sowell. It's just the ideas. So when did you first uh, discover his work? I'd say in the 1980s, actually. Um, I I, I would periodically come across his columns. I think he had a weekly column uh, in various publications. I think it was even syndicated, so I'd run into him that way. I'm trying to remember. I I read his economics intro book, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I forget what year that was first published, but it it was his basic intro. That might have been the 90s, I think. Um, and, you know, cause I, I'm, I don't, I've never taken any economics courses, but I I know a lot about it just cause I've taken all the great courses, courses on economics and the history of economics and Thomas Sowell's books, you know, are really good. His intro to economics is just superb. You know, it's just a textbook really, but you know, he's such a good writer that it feels less like a textbook than a than a trade book i mean i i discovered uh, thomas so just by
1: chance uh you know those books those tables at a bookstore where there's just random books on it and yeah. i found uh economic facts and fallacies there mm. and i mm. i was like oh this looks interesting and then started reading it right you know standing there in the aisle and i became uh just fascinated by him ever since and yeah I've been you know, I've been talking about him for years, and I finally decided to start this podcast as a way to really discuss his ideas with other people because you don't usually come across people who know of him.
0: Right, that's astonishing because well, maybe he is an intellectual, and I travel in those circles. But you know, he wrote for newspapers and magazines, popular magazines for so long. It's how can anybody not know of him? I don't know. Somebody like uh, I'd put him up there with like like a George Will or Charles Krauthammer as a public intellectual, uh, non-liberal public intellectual. Let's let's put him that way. I don't know what he is exactly on the right, but he's not on the left. <laughs> and so you can think of some big names on the left, but what about on the right? Well, I think of George Will and Charles Krauthammer and Thomas Sowell, I would say. His, his Conflict of Visions, he had that trilogy. I was kind of looking on my phone here because I had downloaded a bunch of these when I uh, run, when I finish a book that I need to read for my podcast, then I'll go back to uh, Thomas Sowell, just as good background reading, intellectuals and race, the economics and politics of race, dismantling America, applied economics, intellectuals and society, civil rights. Um, yeah, I mean those are those are all free online, uh, uh, unabridged on Audible.com, unabridged, fully read uh that, to me that's just you know gold that's just a gold mine you know take advantage of that oh yeah his um his trilogy so the conflict of visions was very influential on me which i discovered through pinker's blank slate cuz Steve runs with that and then and twists it slightly thomas's conflict of visions were the i forget the names he had i think it was the was it utopian and the tragic right tragic and then and i think the, i think the uh, utopian was the other one utopian, yeah. yeah basically that the, the the left is more utopian and the reason pinker picked this up is because they're more blank slate like we can we can engineer society from the top down because there there, there is no human nature fixed human nature we can make people into whatever we want if we structure the environment correctly right well that's Actually, not not possible <laughs> because we do have a human nature. So the, so I think he called it the tragic vision because there's a sense that we'll never get to utopia. You know, as as Sol famously said, there are no solutions. There's just um, uh, trade offs, and uh, so utopia is not possible. So that kind of gives a sense of tragic. But there's there's a I think what he means is there's a darker side to human nature that we have to deal with. So you need social institutions, you need a rule of law, you need a military, you need police, you need courts, just criminal justice system. You need norms also provided by institutions like religions and also, um, you know, sort of social capital institutions, not just churches, but other things where there's norms of decency uh, and, and kindness and kind of reinforcing the better angels of our nature. And the reason for that is because there's also those inner demons in there. And uh, so I think Soul is siding, uh, although I, I gather he's not a religious man at all, uh, that he's siding more with, at least this is how I interpret it, with the Christian worldview or religious worldview. Now, it's a different language. You know, they talk about you're born in sin, of course, a evolutionary. Psychologist is not going to say that, but it's, it's like we're born with a nature in which we you know, tend to want to be greedy or we're tribal, we're xenophobic. And there's kind of a logic to all these things. We have the potential for violence. And uh, in a way, there's a logic to it that if you don't cultivate a reputation of uh, not being bullied, you'll be bullied. So one of the things you got to do is, you know, stand up for yourself. And sometimes that requires being seemingly kind of mean or nasty or even, um, you know, punch back if you get punched. And uh, I think that's the the, kind of the tragic side. It's like we're never going to get to utopia because we have these inner inner demons. But the good news is is you can temper them through these various institutions. So I think much of soul's work deals with that so that was the conflict of visions and the other one was the uh, the quest i think it was quest for cosmic justice right. i think that was the third one also very influential on me when i was writing the moral arc you know is this we have this sense of of right and wrong inside of us and everybody wants justice so like some of the lines of research i was looking into was self-help justice So where people don't trust the state, the government, the court system, the police, they still want justice too, but they have to then take it into their own hands. And so this is what drives rates of violence up, inner cities where there's uh, drug trade and so on. If drugs were legal, then you could have a contract with customers and, and producers and distributors. And if there's a violation of the contract, you can sue them, you can go to court. But none of that's available. Those social tools for solving conflict, none of those are available for an illegal, uh, service and product like, like drug distribution. So they have to turn to their own justice, self-help justice. And of course, that involves guns and late night raids on people's homes, and that causes violence to go up. And, uh, but so that idea of cosmic justice is a, a sense internally, like, but I want the right thing to be done. And if the, State doesn't do it. I'm going to make sure it gets done. And, uh, and, and then also I know soul pursued this line with, you know, liberals tend to go for this, um, you know, it, we, we have to have perfect social justice. I think that's the kind of the goal of the social justice activists is, you know, we have to ferret out every last racist cop. Well, that's a good goal. You know, <laughs> we should do that. We don't want racist cops, but, um. That there are far fewer now than there's ever been is a sign of progress. But if you just watch the news, it seems like just the opposite. You know, the cops are as bad or worse than they've ever been, defund the police, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, and that, I think, is if Sol was going to write about the BLM movement, I know he's retired now, but if he was going to write about that or social justice activists or the anti-racism movement, I don't know if he's commented on that publicly, but my guess is he'd say they have a quest for cosmic justice. They want a perfect, um, you know, race blind society, which we all do. But, but, but the problem is, is if they don't attain it, then, you know, then we're going to tear the whole thing down. (laughs) Well, you're never going to attain it. There's always going to be some racist asshole out there. Just some white supremacist. There's always going to be a few. And, uh, and so you have to be able to say two things at at the same time that things are better than they've ever been and they're not perfect and we still have work to do
1: now there are a couple of qu- quotes I've, of yours actually that I'd like to mention here which when I heard you say them on the podcast they sounded somewhat sowellian to me so here's your here's your first quote and republicans think of the government as a strict father Democrats think of the government as a nurturing mother.
0: Yes, nurturing, nurturing uh, parents. Actually, uh, that—that's a. Uh, 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 let's see, what's his name? The Lakoff, George Lakoff, his book Moral Politics. So it's not. Maybe he's influenced by Soul, but he's a linguist, so he studies metaphors. The use of metaphors in social life, mm-hmm. uh, all life. I mean, all, most of science is metaphor. You know, natural selection is like artificial selection, like pigeon breeders. Darwin opens his great book, The Origin of Species. Well, that's a metaphor, right? And string theory, you know, it's, it's like string, like vibrating string. Well, no, it's not, but it's a metaphor. You know, metaphor literally transports you from one place to the other, the, the literal Greek meaning. So, um, And so Lakoff's idea was that liberals and conservatives have different metaphors of the structure of a nation, so conservatives see the nation, well, the nation, the government as a strict father figure and that the purpose of government is like the purpose of the father and the family is to uh, kind of impose discipline on the entire family, especially the children, and that the children are, you know, again, like the tragic vision that, you know, they're flawed and they're sinful and so on. So you got to rain hurt on them. And, and, and give them discipline and rules or and enforce those rules. And that leads to more draconian, um, you know, punish physical punishment, that kind of thing. Whereas liberals, Lakoff says, are are um more like nurturing parents. Now I'm told I'm told by a friend that knows Lakoff who's in that business of linguistics that uh that, that he didn't want to call it a nurturing mother. Because mother implies that it's a woman, and maybe women are not necessarily mothers, or mothers are not are not just women. Men can be mothers. To, I don't know. There's something <laughs> in that whole woke community that people are afraid to tiptoe around. So he used the, the the metaphor of the nurturing parent. Okay, whatever you want to call it, but the idea is more gentle, kind, nurturance of the citizens of a nation. And the government should be there to kind of nudge them along, encourage them to do the right thing with rewards, you know, minimize punishments, this sort of thing. So from there, you can kind of pick different social issues like abortion for conservatives. Well, the problem is unwanted pregnancies. Well, why are these girls getting pregnant when they don't want to be pregnant, they're not ready. Well, they're out messing around, they're fooling around, they're having sex. You know, when they shouldn't be, they should be disciplined, they should be chaste, and, and 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 practice the fidelity and and uh, you know wait till marriage. And, you know, and you know so the idea that well just give them birth control. Oh my God, this are you out of your mind? This just encourages them to be even you know more promiscuous. So no, bad. You know, whereas the Liberal, the nurturing parent would say, okay, yeah, you shouldn't do this, but, you know, just in case, here's some birth control. And, you know, and here's some rules about it if you do get yourself in that situation. And if you get pregnant, we're going to help you. And, you know, we'll either ha- have the abortion or put it up for adoption and, you know, so on. Or guns. Guns are, you know, to the conservative, this is like the father protecting his family. So the Second Amendment is the government's way of saying, if we're going to have a self-governing people and the long arm of the law, and this was written, you know, in the 1780s, you know, the long arm of the law was not very long. It, you know, went like maybe Ohio. <laughs> you know, So, you know, if we're going to expand westward and fill up the continent with a bunch of self-governing people and the government can't be there, well, they got to be armed. Not to mention, you know, if the government gets out of hand and, and you know, a totalitarian state arises, the citizens need to defend themselves. Of course at the time the government had the same weapons that the citizens had you know you know breech loading muskets <laughs> now you know you have a shotgun and a handgun and maybe at most a, an automatic rifle and the and the government has you know military tanks and armored vehicles and whatever else they need so it's not really applicable in that sense to the nurturing parent you know guns are a, a threat you, you can get some liberals See, i believe in gun guns, but with lots of controls and, and so on, and gun safety is a big issue. And so, Or immigration, you know, the, 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 the job of the parent, strict father, parent in the family is to protect his family from outsiders. So in a way, the government is to protect the nation, the citizens from uh, immigrants that are outsiders, a threat to our family. Whereas, you know, the nurturing parent Liberal is more open to immigration. Anyway, so you can just kind of go down the line and you see how it divides up. Now, maybe it's not a perfect way to think about the nation, but it's a useful way to talk about it. And uh, I, I, my guess, I think Sol would 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 find a lot of harmony with that idea.
1: Another another idea that you you've quoted that a few times actually in your podcast is the difference between the Democrat rallying cry and the Republican rallying cry. A Democrat will say, what do we want? Justice, when do we want it? Now. And a Republican will say, what do we want? Slow, gradual, peaceful change over long periods of time. When do we want it? Eventually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have a hard time getting people motivated. (laughs) I find
1: this theme in a lot of Sowell's writings where he says, you know, it took us centuries to develop these institutions and they develop for a reason, even though you might not understand what the reason is right now. But if you just destroy them and you get rid of them and you start over, you actually take the risk that you could be setting us back mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So gradual change, let's test it. Let's make sure these ideas work before we implement them all over the place. And that seems to be you know, a very Sowellian way of, of viewing Absolutely. social change. Yeah.
0: Yes, that's right. It's also I don't know to what extent Soul was influenced by uh, Burke, but you know Edmund Burke was the original conservative, intellectual conservative, and his writings about the in support of the American Revolution but against the French Revolution are emblematic of what you just outlined there. That is to say, the American revolutionaries retain. Most of the institutions that keep society afloat, you know, we got to have laws, we got to have rules, we got to have all these things, you know, they were not against religion, although they were, you know, mostly deists. They weren't atheists. They certainly weren't like, let's get rid of all religion. You know, they felt like a self-governing people needs a, need an internal governor. And uh, so something like that, but uh, but but if you read the Federalist Papers, I've been reading the Federalist Papers just again on my long drives and, and bike rides. They're available online for free. Uh, all of them are, are read, and they're a little difficult to listen to because it's written in that late nineteenth, uh, late eighteenth century, you know, kind of paragraph long sentences. Uh, you know, therefore, furthermore, and moreover, and they go on and on. But but the uh, they're steeped in the ideas of. You know, the checks and balances in a government based on human nature and that these these are the institutions that have worked and they go all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome. You know, most of these guys were, were classically trained, so they understood uh, ancient history, medieval history, all the way up to the early modern period and in their own time, the Enlightenment, influenced by Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and all, and all those writers. And so they were kind of inculcating into that exactly what you just said. Like before we uh, depart on this revolution, you know, we first of all let's list all the reasons. It's right there in the Declaration of Independence. You know, it's you know to a to a candid world. Here are our reasons. Boom, 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 and this is what we're going to do about it, and so forth. And it's not like they... Had, you know, no taxation without – it's not like they were proposing abandoning taxation and we just, you know, are a bunch of anarchists. No, they they, they instituted a taxes right away, you know, to duties, imposts, and so on right there in the Constitution because we got to fund the government, right? So, you know, they were very much in tune with that. And, and yeah, so, so the, again, back to the souls, what I like about him uh, uh, deeply is his international – Perspective, You know, we're Americans are so provincial about our own issues, immigration or race or gender. And, you know, racial group differences are, you know, this is everything now. It's in every conversation every day. But if you read Seoul, you know, he can rattle off two dozen group differences uh, around the world. Like, you know, how to explain these two group differences and these two in Argentina and these two in China and these two in Southeast Asia and this and that and this and that. You go, oh, I don't know. i never even heard of these people. Right. So um, and, and the other point he makes about that is uh, that you could take any two groups of anybody. It could be Nikon versus Canon camera owners and you know do they have income differences do they have wealth difference yes you know Yankee and, and Red Sox fans are probably different in some measurable way uh, so of course men and women blacks and whites Asians and 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 whites and blacks and you can find group differences pretty easily it would be startling if there weren't group differences so Sol's point is that we have to look deeper like uh, you d- use the comparative method historically so you know, this society over here also had slavery and and they had a different outcome. What did they do that's different than what we did? You know, they abolished it earlier or later, they did it in a different way, they have different laws or or something like that. Or like, you know, fifty different states have fifty different gun control measures. In the United States, you can compare those. That's a comparative method. And when you do that, it kinda helps leave ideology and bias out of it. You're just looking at the numbers, which I always admired about Seoul, he was again not it didn't seem to be ideologically driven let's just look at the facts what do they say you know you claim x causes y well here's an example in this other country that's comparable to us where x didn't cause y so it's a counterfactual causality why is that you know what other variables are there that we should look at That's huge, and uh, you know, I wish he was, I wish he was active right now to comment on the the anti-racism, the the Ibram X Kendi's and the the whole BLM movement and all that stuff. You know, it's a it's an understandable reaction to the George Floyd video and some of the others that are hard to watch, but you have to have a Soelian approach of that kind of larger, bigger picture, uh, international comparisons to see. You know, what's the base rate? You know, so you hear like. I was thinking about Seoul the other day when it's about, you know, this issue about how come there aren't more female computer programmers at Google. So, the you know, the ipso facto explaining, oh, they're a bunch of it's an old boys uh, climate and, uh, you know, a bunch of misogynist guys. And there's even a TV series about this, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, these guys are bad. Well, OK, but before we go to that conclusion, because maybe there are a few because there's always going to be a few of anything like that. Um, maybe there's some other issues. What's the base rate? How many women apply to be computer engineers, programmer engineers at Google? Is it 50-50 and only 20% get hired? So that would indicate there's some some issue going on here. Uh, But it isn't 50%. You know, it's way lower. In fact, as far as I know, last time I checked this is Google is hiring uh, comparable percentages of women who do apply. In fact, they're going out of their way to hire like all universities particularly in STEM fields science technology engineering and math trying desperately to hire women and people of color but the problem is is okay so here gets the systemic racism or misogyny is that well, why are there fewer applying so now you got to go back into time and say well because they um, they don't take as many of those courses in high school. Well, why not? Because they didn't take them in middle school. Why not? Well, they dropped out in sixth grade. Why? And then you, you go all the way back to like grammar school and the schools are in you know, these inner city schools. They're on, under, uh, performing, and they're crappy neighborhoods and I don't know what. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're just talking about big, deep issues of like, why is this? Are there these differences in society? And then you need someone like a soul that can dig deep into the kind of economic data and that kind of thing.
1: You probably remember this. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, I remember there was a movement to get rid of those signs that say men working by the side of the road. Do you remember this? And then they replaced them with people working. Okay, 45 years later, I'm still waiting to pass by a construction site filled with women. I have not noticed that happen.
0: And they whistle at you. <laughs> exactly.
1: There, there definitely are differences between men and women, and it would be as Soul would say: there's no reason to think that they should be the same right. in their preferences, in right. their choices, in their aptitudes, even.
0: Right.
1: And the the fact that we do think they're the same is sort of a cognitive distortion we expect that to be the default.
0: Yes, exactly. And and in a way it's also giving away the game to the misogynists. Uh, I think when feminists say, well, you know, women should be able to do exactly the same thing as men and that those jobs, the CEO position or whatever, those are the best jobs and these jobs over here that the women are doing, these are crappy jobs. Well, wait a minute. You've just you've given away the game. Why is raising children somehow less valuable? than being the Fortune 500 CEO or a senator or a congressman. Really, they're only focusing on the money and power, political power uh, and and and, and fi- financial power. And uh, so, I mean, to me, you know, it's just a lifelong careerist and I like to work, but, you know, I would not want to be a Fortune 500 company guy. I was just listening to a podcast with uh, Francis Collins. He works 100 hours a week, National Institute of Health Director, 100 hours a week for a decade. And his... The host asked him, how come you're stepping down? He goes, I'm tired of working 100 hours a week. I just want to have a life. And there's no other way. I and there's, yeah, those hours, that, right? that's right. It's like, and I listen, to and I go, yeah, but I wouldn't want that job. Why would anybody want that job? I mean, so there's so many cuts in, 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 along the way to get to there that that's not a normal life. And I just think there's probably going all the way back to, you know, just evolved preferences and differences. There's just slightly more men than women that would want those jobs not many there's uh, it has nothing to do with cognitive ability of course women can run countries like angela merkel longest running you know chancellor of germany uh, ever and uh, you know or any like mary Barra at gm uh, you know the, 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 there's no issue of are they not qualified of course they're qualified but that isn't the only thing that matters you, know, you have to want to do those jobs and and or the you know the back to the construction or, or any of those super dangerous jobs, you know the the, the fishermen up in Alaska the cra- crab guys and all those stuff you know where the ship, half the ships sink and uh, I don't know what, uh, you know and it's like the the percentage of people that die on the job is some insanely high number, you know why would anybody want those jobs? Well, so it, it takes many cuts to get people in. It's just more men are going to want those jobs, you know, and then maybe secondarily or tertiarily, maybe it's an it's an old boys. Club or something by the time, you know, it's just almost all men. And, you know, I've, I ran a bike race for, you know, Race Across America. I I was the race director for a decade in the 90s and we had some really strong women. And uh, I, I had no doubt they, you know, they could beat most of the men, but not all of them. And either one of them could have gone in the military, and they would have kicked the ass of most of the guys, but not all of them, right? So it's not that the women can't do it. It's just, it's just well, there, there's two cuts there: the motivation and interest, and then the physical strength. So if you think of it as two overlapping bell curves, of course, there's plenty of women that are a lot stronger than many men. But the, the mean of the two bell curves is, is separated physically. And then we also know that, you know, and this, there's a ton of data on this of vocational interests. You know, they've been given these tests since you and I were in middle school taking the What do you want to be when you grow up? I'm an astronaut, whatever. You know, we fill out those little forms. And, you know, the, the girls tend to, I'm talking middle school here, so girls tend to migrate toward more people-oriented careers, men toward more thing-oriented careers. And that has been withstood the whole replication crisis and all that stuff. That is pretty, pretty solid, and not just in America, but around the world, not just in Western cultures, but other cultures. And now even I saw some research on primates, like chimpanzee. Boys like to play with trucks and, and, and things and chimpanzee girls like to play with dolls, even though they weren't in culture, inculturated in that at all. It's just the kind of thing you like to manipulate in your hands and, and what makes you feel good that you're having fun with. So I think, you know, without considering that, it's really it's a form of injustice to just say, well, everybody at Google is a bunch of racists or misogynists. You know, that's an indictment of them. And when I read about this, you know, systemic, you know, they're, oh, yeah, name names. Who's doing it? Exactly. You know, is somebody in your department? Well, if they're discriminating, there's already laws about this. Turn them in. Who are they? No, no, I don't mean, I mean just kind of generically. Okay. Uh, very unhelpful. You know, like that Princeton letter I always talk about uh, that, you know, last year. They say, you know, we've been you know uh, culpable in the systemic racism and then the Trump administration said oh yeah what'd you do because there's laws about this we can withhold funding from you or or worse you could be sued for discrimination oh no no we don't mean we did anything specific oh okay <laughs> so one of the things I liked about Soul's research again back to that is that you know you like to you like to target specific problems what exactly is the problem You know, like with the George Floyd case. The problem isn't systemic racism with police departments. The problem was Derek Chauvin. That guy right there, he's a racist asshole, probably, I guess. Sure looked like it. And uh, so get rid of that guy. You know, not like, let's get rid of all the police. This is a, a catastrophe. Most police are, are good people. Most of them are not racist anymore. You know, that, that we're not living in the 1950s. I mean, that's the whole point of my research and Steve Pinker and Matt Ridley and others. You know, we've made a lot of progress and that, you know, we have to recognize that. Or else what was the point of the civil rights movement if we didn't make progress?
1: Let's do a thought experiment for a minute here. What, what would have been different... In terms of Thomas Sowell's absorption in the culture, if he had been white, you know, just sort of I, 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 let me read you a quote uh, from someone who was talking about this issue, and then you, know, you can comment on it. This is from Christopher DeMuth. The one black person I know who's really been a victim of racial discrimination may be Tom Sowell. If he weren't black, people would realize what a great economist he was. But they put him in this category because he writes about race and he's got all these contrarian views. And people don't realize that there is this immense intellectual corpus that this man has written on a completely different subject. If he were a Jewish white guy at the University of Chicago, he'd be better recognized for what he is, which is one of the greatest living economists. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking of it in the other direction. Maybe he's listened to more carefully because he's black. He can say certain things that you and I as white guys can't say. But I guess the flip side is what you just read. Maybe it's hard to say again because the, the circles I travel in, you know, he's like a mini god. I mean, he's just up there in the in the uh, in the ether.
1: Let me let me tell you something. I went to uh, Caltech the other day with a microphone, and I stopped the first twenty people that passed me on the walkways. You know Caltech, right? Okay, gorgeous. beautiful campus, yeah. right down the road from here. And I said, "Have you ever heard of Thomas Sowell? And out of twenty people zero had ever heard the name. Thomas who? Spell that for me. Like they had never even heard the name. And these are very educated, very intelligent people, both faculty and students that I interviewed. And from my own experience, whenever I tell people that I do a podcast about Thomas Sowell, they're like, who is that? I've never met anybody who's really in, in the regular population Who's really heard of him
0: yeah the problem with that of course it's select sample and caltech is going to be highly focused on stem and whether economics belongs in there or not is it a, is a, it is a, they have their own economics department but i don't know it's probably probably again it, it circles outside of those that i travel in like i'm just i think my cycling friends would they have heard of thomas soul maybe one of them i don't know but not a soul i mean if i say I don't. I don't know. Like out outside of, out of my circle, Stephen Pinker's not super famous, although maybe recently he's got a little more attention. But outside of maybe Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, Richard Dawkins, you know, that's about it. For you know that spill over into just pop culture where everybody knows who they are. Uh, so Thomas Sowell is maybe just falling into that issue of just. Most people don't know most people that are that are intellectuals. Um, I mean, more people know Malcolm Gladwell, who just writes about other people's research. And you know, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's you know ten thousand hour rule of becoming well. That's not his, you know, but everybody reads it in his books, right? So, I think maybe Soul is just caught up in that. Again, it's not like he didn't have a public presence, you know. I mean. You can see those firing line episodes. Wasn't he on firing line with uh, William F. Buckley? Yes.
1: Yeah. And, yeah I,
0: I, I, again, where did I encounter him? I'm pretty sure in the 80s. Back, I used to watch firing line religiously. I loved. Again, <laughs> William F. Buckley. I'm not a conservative, but wow, what an intellect! You know, he such such a great mind, and had such great guests and good exchanges. And uh, you know, so that's where I saw Soul. But again, outside of those circles, uh, there aren't many people that the average person, just even at like a university, is going to know who they are, or if you rattle off again, you, you mentioned others, so maybe a George, a George Will or a, 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 a Charles Krauthammer. But in economics, I mean, who's going to, you know, Adam Smith? Maybe that's probably about it. Uh, you would think that would uh, be like weird. Friedman, maybe. Um, uh, Milton Friedman. But even there, if you asked a bunch of people at Caltech, do you know Milton Friedman? I- I'm guessing you're going to get mostly, I don't know who that is.
1: But I feel like his, his reputation has really been suppressed, especially in the black community. Because he is one of the most accomplished black scholars he, he in in history. He he's written 47 books and then, you know, weekly columns for, for decades. And I suspect, yeah, I suspect that he has been suppressed. as He's been ignored as an intentional strategy.
0: I don't like to think that could be the case, but I think you might be right. I mean, so think of this concept of identity politics. You know, we just saw this with the LA Times and Larry Elder running for governor on the re-election and recall. And, you know, the Times has gone through this transition the last three or four years where, you know, we are going to fall over backwards to do what we can to help the black community. And I get the paper. I've gotten the paper, you know, for 30 years. And, you know, every other story is, you know, triumphing some, you know, black artist or writer, whoever. Okay, fine. But then here's Larry Elder. He's a black guy. Oh, no, no. They just trashed him. I mean, like daily. They even, I mean, just took the low of low, you know, the famous headline that went viral, you know, the the black face of white supremacy. It's like, oh, my God. You know, would they ever say that about somebody who was not, Conservative, and uh, so there that made me think it isn't about identity politics. It's about politics. You know, it's not really race. It's like if you don't have the right liberal politics, it doesn't matter what your skin color is. So I, to that extent, could be that Soul, you know, lost some um, momentum that way or attention. I don't know what you want to call it uh, because he's black, and therefore, since blacks tend to vote liberal and democratic, uh, then it could be thought of, I guess, as a race trader or Uncle Tom or whatever. I, I, I don't know if he's been accused of that, but it's certainly Shelby Steele, who I, I, I know I had on the show, he's experienced that. Same thing with um, Clarence Thomas. Again, it's like, but I thought we were race sensitive. No, it's not just race. It's not even race. Race is secondary or tertiary. It's politics. But let yeah. me ask you, What? what, what you know Thomas Sowell's work better than yeah. me. Is what, what would you classify him as politically?
1: Well, I would definitely call him a conservative mm-hmm. and a libertarian. I think he's very, very skeptical of the ability of government to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very skeptical. And he calls people who think that government programs can solve problems gullible.
0: Mm-hmm. He uses
1: that word. And I think that he's done enough study to know that most government programs are either they don't work or they're counterproductive or they have unintended negative consequences that are worse than the problems Mm -hmm. that they're trying. Here's a quote. Let me read you this quote and get your comments on it. Quote, sometimes it seems as if there are more solutions than problems on closer scrutiny. It turns out that many of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's well supportable by pretty much any industry or area you want to look into. I mean, we just came off the worst, longest war in history, our history, 20 years, Afghanistan war. And, you know, not only did we not end the Taliban and and so on, it's, you know, we, we spent $2 trillion, well, $1 trillion there, another trillion in Iraq. So, the $2 trillion infrastructure bill and social spending bill that Biden wants to pass, well, that we could have paid for it with that, with those two wars. Well, what, what was the purpose of the war? Well, it was to um, do something about 9-11. Well, so 3,000 died on 9-11 and more than that died in Afghanistan. So we, we, we spent more lives and just way more money uh, than we lost. So and we're back in the same place, where, the same place right? where we started it's just insane so you can apply that to almost anything now again i'm not an anarchist or uh, or a uh, anarcho-capitalist but you know maybe we need interstates and you know common certain common problems um solved by government because people aren't going to get there on their own uh so i think i think soul is probably that kind of conservative although he's not religious right he's not a religious conservative right and uh you know let's just some of the other hot button issues for conservatives that are pretty standard pro-life was he pro-life i don't i don't i don't know i don't remember him ever writing about yeah maybe he never wrote about uh that or or gun control i think he was uh minimal minimal gun control right i think he, he he
1: approached it from a very uh Empirical point of view, where he looked at the difference between violence in England versus violence in America, mm-hmm. and he came to the conclusion that the idea that guns cause violence doesn't hold up oh, right. under scrutiny, right. Right. Um, and that um, thinking that if you get rid of guns, you're going to get rid of violence is gullible.
0: Yes, I, that's true. I I agree with that. But looking into it, um, you know, the way violence bubbles up uh you know if you just have a couple guys drunken guys in a bar room uh, mad about somebody cheated a pool or it, it dissed him in front of his girlfriend or something like that and they get into it and they're rolling around on the ground and the guys break them up that's one thing but if one of them has a gun then that's how you end up with these hom- uh, higher rates of homicide just because the weapons are available it's harder to kill somebody without you know a deadly weapon it's really hard to kill pe- people and uh, that's why a lot of the, you know, like capital punishment is it's practiced in hunter-gatherer uh, tribes is they they have like a, all the guys in the group decide, all right, we're going to take this guy out. He's just he's just destroying our little group. They take him out on a hunt and they just come back without him. And also it distri- distributes the guilt. Like there's it's harder to have a revenge killing against a whole bunch of people rather than one. So you get those kind of feuding things go away with, with that. And, uh, anyway, that's a, a little side, side note there. So I do think, yeah, I mean, I'm I have had libertarian tendencies, but there's a few things I think and the, you know, the rate of gun violence is incredibly disturbing, you know, just in terms of the number killed every year, homicides, suicides, and accidental killings it's about the same as uh, automobile accidents, about 35,000 to 40,000 a year. And, uh, you know, if, if it, it you know, if it was that many, terrorist deaths every year, you know, a a, a, a 9-11 every month or something, you know, conservatives would lose their minds. I mean, they'd, you know, cancel the constitution, except the second amendment. (laughs) We got to have a triple the budget of the homeland security. You know, we got to shut the borders down. No more airline flight. They would, conservatives would go for a massive, huge government intervention, right? But why don't they do that with guns? Because there's no logic to it. There's kind of, Guns are a sacred value. They're a standout proxy for something else. Freedom, liberty, whatever. Autonomy. Back to the strict father uh, family metaphor. You know, this is what I need to protect my family. That kind of thing. Now, while I'm pounding on conservatives, because I have been doing this lately, is, you know, we're in favor of small government. No, you're not. No, they absolutely are not in favor of small government. They like big, massive government, huge spending, military courts, criminal justice system, prisons, border walls, and just goes on and on and on. And, you know, the defense budget this year, what, $770 billion this year? Uh, you know that's from from the Trump era. You know, it's, it, you know, Trump grew the the budget, the but the debt as much as Obama did. And Obama grew it more than Bush, and Bush more than you know, every one of them. <laughs> so, you know, again, that's uh, uh, what would Thomas Sowell say about that? Uh, that's if if that's conservatism, then what is that mean to be? Then you're not if you're a small government person, you're not a conservative. You're something else. Again, maybe libertarian. Mm-hmm.
1: I think he does consider himself to be more of a libertarian than a conservative, are yeah. you right? Um, let's talk about, we, we talked about race a little bit before. and one, one concept that I learned from Sowell was this concept of a race hustler. Hmm. I never heard that term before until I started reading his books. And here's a quote from Sowell from 1970, which is a very, very hard-hitting quote. I mean, imagine... You know in the movies when they take a shotgun and they shoot it at your door and the whole door goes blowing off the hinges? Okay, this quote I think is that (laughs) magnitude. So listen to this. Quote, The black community has long been plagued by spellbinding orators who know how to turn the hopes and fears of others into dollars and cents for themselves. The current militant rhetoric, self-righteousness, and lifestyle are painfully old to me. I have seen the same intonations, the same cadence, the the same crowd manipulation techniques, the same visions of mystical redemption, the same faith that certain costumes, gestures, phrases, and group emotional release would somehow lead to the promised land. And I have seen the same hustling messiahs driving their Cadillacs and getting their pictures in the paper.
0: Thomas Sowell, 1972. 72 so who would he have been talking about maybe Jesse Jackson um, uh, Al Sharpton maybe around that time today he it would probably refer to Ibram X. Kendi. Um, maybe a few there's a few like he's kind of the big one but there's there's several like that. I've heard John McWhorter call them, you know, race grifters. Same, same, same ideas, idea, right? race hustlers, but I, I'm hesitant to say because you know I'm a white guy, so I'm not supposed to say stuff like that. But it, it, so to be, I guess, a little more intellectual about it, it's like, what is the program after? What's the long-term goal here? It seems to be the opposite of Dr. King's dream, right? The content of our character, not the color of our skin. Back to Shelby Steele's book I read in 1989. No. Yeah, 89, I think it was. Um, the content of her character, it was called. Great book. And that's where he coined the term white guilt. That, you know, a lot of these. So Robin DiAngelo is white, but she's one of these race hustlers or race scriptors, as they're called. Even though she's white, she's kind of playing on the white guilt. And even though you think you're a liberal, you are not getting away with it. We know you're, you know, in, in unconsciously racist. And, you know, if you say you're not, that's further evidence that you are. It's like the witch, witch trials. You know, I'm not a witch. Oh, that's what all the witches say. (laughs) Okay, I am a witch. Aha! Either way, you're going down. You're going to the stake. So I think it's a little bit like that. And, you know, we have to get away from this categorizing people by their skin color, how much melanin they have in their skin, which gonads they have, and so on. That's the least important, interesting thing about somebody. It removes their autonomy and individuality. It it just It's a shortcut it's a lazy cognitive shortcut to listening to what somebody actually has to say what are your ideas oh you're a white guy i, know. I already know what you think are you are a black guy i know what you think uh you know that that that's the opposite not to mention that it also leads to This inclination we have to be xenophobic, tribal and think, well, okay, if I'm supposed to focus on your race and you're a different race than me, it's one step away from and you're inferior to me. And therefore, I'm going to treat you differently and think about you differently. And, uh, you know, so the whole anti-racism movement, it's really pro-racism in in a way. It's saying before we get to our race neutral society, which is never going to happen, right, we're going to have to focus on race. Starting with slavery. Okay, uh, you know I'm not against the idea of slavery being taught in schools. Of course, it should be taught. You know, age appropriate. A five year old doesn't need to learn about this, but you know, sometime middle school, high school. Okay, yeah, this is this is our original sin of our country. These are the things that happen. And by the way, you might have them read Thomas Sowell's book on race and slavery. You know, this is practiced everywhere, including black owners of slaves, including in America. Some percentage I'd never even heard of this. Um, Until recently, that of freed black slaves themselves became owners of slaves. Essentially, okay. Of course, we're not talking about that as the problem, but it's it's there. And so, and what about slavery in Africa? I mean, most of the slaves that were gathered up for the slave ships, you know, they had the slave owners, slave traders had contracts with some of the African um, tribal leaders that would help them. You know, and buy, pay them to get slaves. Anyway, it's so, You know, Sol's work is, shows how complicated it is that, that you know it's been around for thousands of years. You know, there's nothing unique about the American form of slavery. Of course, they're all slightly different, but you can't read Thomas Sowell's books and say, "Well, our slavery was worse than all the others." That, this is not true. And uh, the whole, all of it's bad, of course. But uh, anyway, so I,
1: now you're, you're a public intellectual. Right? And so is Thomas Sowell. And have you ever read Intellectuals in Society? Yeah. yeah. The main thesis of Intellectuals in Society is that intellectuals often get it completely wrong because they are not judged by whether their ideas work in reality, in the real world. They are judged by what other intellectuals think of their ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you yourself are, are a public intellectual and. Do you think that's true? I mean, if you if you had some crazy ideas that just didn't work in reality, would you ever pay a price if everybody thought you were a smart guy?
0: Pay a price? Probably not. Uh, other than maybe just lower book sales or you know less fewer speaking engagement invitations something like that uh, you know for me to be canceled cancel culture it'd have to be worse than just bad wrong ideas it would have to be something racist or misogynist that was pretty blatant something like that I think he has a point I'll, so there's two parts I think that's part of it um, you know the, the the people that research prediction markets you know show that you know intellectual experts that you see on the as talking heads on all the evening talk shows and so on they're never held accountable they can just say whatever they want and a few times that they're right uh you know they're they're they they hold that up as a triumph but no one keeps track of how many uh, mistakes they made or how many predictions that never came true so that you know, that uh, when you force them, like in a prediction market where you put money up, you know, then that changes everything. Then, oh, this is serious. So then they start actually doing real calculation, like Bayesian reasoning to calculate the, the odds of something happening. So Tversky and Kahneman did a lot of research on this. And I'm just trying to remember, was it Tom Nichols, uh, The Death of Expertise? And then there was uh, Tetlock, Philip Tetlock did research on this, his book on the super forecasters. So super forecasters are those who, are basing in their reasoning, they're constantly updating their priors with new information. They adjust the predictions. They don't have a cosmic vision of things. It's not. It's like I'm a Marxist, so everything has to boil down to class conflict, and that's what I'm going to look for and find. They don't have anything like that. It's like whatever, it, whatever it'll come out, whatever comes out, without any commitment to it, and especially being willing to change your mind. The problem with all the talking head experts is they usually have some agenda. That, that's on the table. It's right there. Everybody knows what it is. So, for example, I could tell you what tonight's Tucker Carlson show on Fox News is going to be about. I can tell you exactly what he's going to say. And I don't even know what the topic is tonight. The moment you give me the topic, I'll tell you what he's going to say. OK, this is not good. <laughs> I shouldn't know. I shouldn't have any idea what he thinks about something I've, I've never heard him speak on. But I can tell you that already. So that's, I think, a, a pretty bad sign. Uh, the other aspect is that, yes, so there's no consequences to pay, but also intellectuals tend to live in, in, in the rarefied air of the ivory tower or some other institution where they don't have contact with regular people, real people. Lenin famously hardly ever worked. He never visited a factory. He didn't like engage with and talk to and interact with workers, right? But he had this theory about workers. And so... And what they want and what they need and so on. And so he wrote books about it. He was just totally intellectual about it. And then when World War One happened and, you know, they all predicted, well, it's going to be the classes are going to rise up and the workers and so on. None of that happened. It was nationalism. You know, workers killed other workers in different nations. So it wasn't a class conflict thing. And then he didn't predict the middle class, the rise of the middle class. And, uh, but, but those intellectuals never change their mind. They don't, they don't think, well, we made this prediction. It didn't happen, so let's adjust our theory. That never happens. So that, that's the other problem.
1: In, in the same book, he talks about uh, the difference between intellect and wisdom. And here's what he says. He says, wisdom requires self-discipline and an understanding of the realities of the world, including the limitations of one's own experience and of reason itself. The opposite of intellect is dullness or slowness, but the opposite of wisdom is foolishness, which is far more dangerous.
0: That's a wise observation, let's say. Yeah. Well, it could be that uh the fact that he kind of left academia early on in his career, just decided I'm going to be independent and just write, uh, was probably the best thing anybody could do to be an independent thinker. Of course, you can't always do that. I mean, some he got to have a job, and so he was able to get funding and work at where he was at the Hoover Institute, right? Yeah. So uh, that helps. But, you know, the moment you go down the career path of being an academic, you know, there's a certain environment you're going to be just steeped in, and it's hard to even see out of it, side of it. So, Uh, and also Sol worked in government too, right? The labor department, was it? Or housing? Labor. And he could see how the sausages were made. It's like, oh, these people don't actually care what the outcome is; it's, it's they're kind of keeping their jobs. I tell a funny story. One of my favorite episodes with Joe Rogan's podcast when he had on, on had on um, it was the uh, the WikiLeaks whistleblower, not uh, um, Snowden. 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 Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden. Yeah. Edward Snowden. Anyway, so Snowden was talking. You know, Joe's really into conspiracies, and conspiracy theories. And so he's asking him about this as he worked in government. He goes, let me tell you what the real conspiracy is, Joe. These are a bunch of bureaucrats that are mostly just trying to keep their fiefdom alive and just keep the funding coming. They just keep their jobs. So you know, the, the way the sausage is made is like they they have to kind of ramp up the threat, you know, the terror threat or whatever. This is if, if you if you cut off our funding, you know, oh, this disaster is gonna happen, so you need us. All that is really just job maintenance. And you know, kind of their their little power niche in their corner of the government, and it's not like they're trying to get you know world domination. No, it's just you know, keep the jobs. And so, you know, it's not the you know transforming lizard people running the government or the or or, or some cabal like that. It's just a bunch of bureaucrats. So I think that, that that's that. Soul's story about leaving the labor department when he realized well, they have no interest in actually solving these social problems. They're just trying to keep their jobs.
1: Soul talks about. Um, here's a quote from Soul I'd like you to get your comment on. Quote I suspect that even most conservatives would prefer to live in the kind of world conjured up in the liberals' imagination rather than in the kind of world we are in fact stuck with.
0: Maybe. I don't know. You know, because conservatives have certain values that they hold dear that they're not willing to give up regardless of the outcome. Guns, I mentioned, is is one of those. You know, I mentioned 35,000 to 40,000 people die every year of guns, same as cars. So in debates I've done on guns, like well, I've asked my interlocutors, well, what if it was an order of magnitude more? 350,000 to 400,000 a year die of gun violence. Would you be concerned? Nope. I want my guns. Uh, it, there's no number of people that would die by guns that would change that value. And it, and it has to do with, with, um, you know, kind of sacred values that you can't put a number or a price on. It's what, uh, it's what people bump up to against when they talk about like prostitution or organ sales. You know, why not let people sell their second kidney? You only need one. And there's a market for it. And you can make some pretty good money doing it. And, most people don't have an argument against it other than it just that just sounds wrong like what's the right price for a kidney oh no 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 you can't put a, or a you know a sex worker you know what's the right price for sex you know it's like oh that just sounds terrible there's no you don't put money on it <laughs> you know in the same way like if you went to somebody's somebody invited you over for dinner to their home and at the end you said well what what i owe you and you get your wallet out it'd be like they'd be insulted. Like, this is, what are you talking about?
1: You can't put a price on the friendship.
0: Yeah, for, yeah. My generosity. So I think for some conservatives, I don't think they want to live in the liberal world. I, I'm not sure Sol's right about that. I mean, he had this idea, I've heard him say that, where, you know, that kind of, that sort of socialist, egalitarian world uh, where everybody has everything they need and so on. I don't think that's what conservatives want. They, they like a world where there's hardship and differences, and that's just the way it is. Let me share with you an experience I had when
1: I was in college. So let me set this up for a minute. When I, was, when I was in high school, I read my first Ayn Rand book, which I'm sure you've read a few of, right? It was The Fountainhead. And I remember being blown away by that book. And after only a few pages, I looked up and I said to myself, this is the best book I've ever read. Now, it turns out it was really the first intellectual book I had ever read. I mean, I was not a very well-read high school student, and it really impacted me. And I went down this sort of rabbit hole of reading all of Ayn Rand's books. And at, at, at university, I started an Ayn Rand club. I was the president <laughs> of the Ayn Rand club.
0: Where was that?
1: At the University of Pennsylvania. All right. And um, I came across a book which really had a very paradigm-shifting experience on my thinking. Now, I don't want to name this book. I'm going to write it down for you because I want to know if you... I don't want our listeners to know what this book is because this book basically presents a a socialist paradise. If you know it, don't say. And the book is so compelling. It's so convincing that... It really shocked me because I thought to myself I know this stuff doesn't work in real life. It's been tried many many times all around the world. But the the ideas are so compelling and so convincing that I started to develop a little sort of intellectual humility. Like if I can be so convinced by both poles of these ideas, the Ayn Rand on the one hand, on the one hand, and this other book on the other. So here, I'm going to show you the name of the book. Let me know if you've ever read this book.
0: Uh, I have not read that. Of course, I've heard of it. Uh, It's a pretty famous book in sort of science... Not science fiction, I guess you'd call it. uh, I don't know. Utopian literature. Yeah, utopian literature. Yeah. The
1: the initials of the book are LB. Why why don't you say it? I'll tell you why. And the author's initials are EB. (laughs) So for those of you who want to be sleuths, you can try to figure out what it is. But the reason I'm afraid, I feel like if this book became widely known now, that it would serve as a a real impetus to more socialist Mm. thinking because that's how good this book is Mm. i think if people read this this book was written i think in 1878 if people rediscover this book i i dread to know what would happen so i'd I'd rather not say the name of you know little
0: 19th century literature that will become popular just because the writing style was usually so florid and, and much longer sentences and takes much more concentration to follow the plot. But the the point of
1: my story was just that it really opened my mind up to the power of ideas that we human beings can be easily influenced by ideas. And those ideas can have massive consequences. And even when they don't work, maybe even especially when they don't work, the inner logic, the inner beauty, the poetic beauty of an idea can somehow be more powerful than the practical the practicality of the idea.
0: Yeah, do you know uh, Stein's law things that can't go on forever won't. Right? <laughs> then there's Davies' corollaries to Stein's law that things that can't go on forever won't, but they can go on a lot longer than you think. <laughs> so, you know, the world that Ayn Rand describes in Atlas Shrugged, say, you know, is a very extreme version. Like this is what would happen if you took these uh, kind of communist social far-left socialist principles and applied them across the board like in a matter of months or a year or two this is how rapidly society would dissolve okay that's never going to happen here uh, it, But it could happen very slowly over the course of like a century of just more laws, more regulations and so on. So, again, this is why we need two parties. We, we need conservatives to come in there and go, all right, we've had too many laws. Let's cut back the regulatory state for a while like Trump did and that, that goosed the economy quite a bit. So, okay, but, of course, we don't want to go too far down that road. We need some regulation, like, you know, so uh, so we got to get the Dems back in to, you know, kind of— So I, I see the two as kind of bouncing off each other. And, you know, I, I like Ayn Rand's writings, but, but Atlas Shrugged was by far, I think, her best work. Her, her nonfiction is not easy to read. It's pretty heady stuff, and she's a philosopher, so—and I'm not. And, and so there's the, the way philosophers think that I have a harder time concentrating on their— on their arguments than scientists do uh, but also where she came from you just have to understand why is she so extreme well she came right out of uh, uh, the Russian Revolution and you know her family lost all their belongings and their property to the state so of course she's gonna you know feel like hey look what happens oh that can't happen it happened there <laughs> it could happen here now I don't think it could happen here at least along those lines but I think the other attract the thing that attracts people about Rand is that um, she's inspirational. Her, 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 her good figures are really strong characters. And she has this reputation of creating these characters that are just, you know, like greedy assholes. But, but they're not. They're they're really not like that. You have to just kind of get to the core of what she's talking about. Um, you know, when she talks about the character development of, you know, Hank Reardon or Francisco Denconia or John Galt. You know they're kind of cardboard characters, but 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 what they represent, you know, is it kind of inspirational. You know, just be the best you can be. It doesn't matter what you do in life. You could be like one of her characters runs into a. Uh, a, a, a hamburger stand a guy's flipping burgers turns out it's like the, it'd be like Dan Dennett the philosopher's flipping burgers it's the best burger she's ever had and he's uh, he's making this burger with the most skill and and he's proud of what he's doing you know it's a, it's kind of a silly story like that's ever going to happen well but the point is that whatever you're doing You should just be good at it. You should be the best you could possibly be. Now, what That should be inspirational to anybody, right? And uh, so I think that's what people get out of her. Again, this kind of identity politics, we should support women no matter what, particularly like in industry. Yeah, well, Ayn Rand's main character in Atlas Shrugged ran a transcontinental railroad. She's like the hero of the story. She, right? And uh, so obviously Ayn Rand is a feminist. Oh no, she's the wrong kind of feminist. Okay, so it isn't feminism. It's politics. We're back to po it's not identity politics. it's politics, right? You gotta have the right kind of politics or else you're not a true uh, you know, feminist or whatever. And um and I could go on and on about Rand. Ra- I know they work quite well. I'd be curious to know what Thomas Sowell thought about uh, Ayn Rand's writings. But again, I try to be charitable. I know she has I've had critics on the show. About her and I read, you know, I know that cult like following. I've written about that myself. You know, cl- clearly, there's flaws in the philosophy and the movement. But why not take the best part of it, and, and like you would any writer?
1: Let's end with uh, another soul quote and then get your thoughts on it. I know we're coming to the end of our time. Quote, The fact that so many successful politicians are such shameless liars is not only a reflection on them; it is also a reflection on us. When the people want the impossible, only liars can satisfy.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess Trump would be a good test case of that, because I do think the public understands politicians do lie, exaggerate, dissemble, you know, whatever they do to get the job done. And they all do it. You know, Obama was just as bad as Bush in his own way you know, Mr. Transparency, who wasn't transparent, you know, the surveillance state grew under Obama, you know, and Gitmo got even worse. And, you know, all the troops, he didn't pull the troops out, on and on and on. But at some point, I think Trump's uh, line was just so blatant. Even when it wasn't in the Service of anything he would lie when he was getting nothing out of it. I mean you kind of see the politician would exaggerate or lie a little bit just to get just to get this thing done, but Trump would do it just for for no reason just to see if the gullible trumpsters would follow him and believe it, and they did <laughs> you know and so uh, you know and the Washington Post kept that you know they kept a tally you know it was over thirty thousand lies in four years. You know, demonstrable. You could just look it up to see what he said. He's wrong. You know, every speech had like a dozen or two. And I think that I think most people, even conservatives, said, all right, that's too much. And that's why you had the Lincoln Project and some of the other uh, never Trumpers in the Republican Party that said this. This really is, you know, we can only stretch the rubber band so far before we said that's enough. And uh, and Trump's really not a conservative. He's his own thing. He's a Trumpster, whatever, a Trumpism, whatever that is. It's not conservatism. It's not liberalism. It's not libertarianism. It's his own thing. And I think so, again, I think the public will put up with a certain amount of that, but that's too much.
1: Well, Michael Shermer, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast.
0: When are you going to have Sowell on? I'm working on it.
1: Let me end this episode by reading a letter I received from the Supreme Court of the United States. Dear Mr. Wolin, many thanks for sending me the Thomas Sowell post-it notes. I have long been impressed by Professor Sowell's voluminous writings, and I am happy that you have started a show dedicated to the discussion of his work. I appreciate the invitation to appear on your show, but I am afraid my work obligations during the very demanding October term 2021 does not permit me to do so. Sincerely yours, signed Justice Samuel A. Alito Jr. I'm Alan Wolin, and this has been episode eight of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks for
0: listening.